Hello and welcome to Tell Us Your Effin' Story, a podcast by franchisors for franchisors, where we go behind the scenes with some of the most interesting characters in the Australian franchising sector. Today, I'm with Jacinta Caithness, Principal of Caithness and Co. <laughs> um, I'm Bruce McFarlane, your host, and today I'm our co-host, John Sully. So just into. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Tell us your fucking story. John, it's your franchising story. Sorry. Come on. Nice. One of the same sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Has been, but we're going to go right back at the start, Jacinta. So tell, where did you grow up, and tell us a little bit about what you know. What did you like to do as a kid? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was born in Melbourne, and we were here in Deer Park um, for the first five years, and that was myself, my older sister, and my younger sister. And back in it would have been, I'm saying, um, 1985-ish. Um, my dad, who worked for Cabbage Works, got a transfer opportunity to move to Perth in Western Australia, so. They took that opportunity and we were there for the next eight years. And life over there um, was, to me, the most magical place. It was Surf Life Saving Club every Saturday Sunday morning. Um, it was playing hockey. Every day was a play date at someone's house with a pool. It was always warm. You didn't wear shoes all the time. And the, the hot nice. pavement was just the most relaxing feeling. Um, so, yeah, we played um, uh, hockey, which for them, um, well, not them, the, the Western Australian... Um, Side is very passionate about hockey, so that was a fun thing to get into. Uh, junior program and surf life saving. Um, did a lot of swimming, um, competitive swimming, and yeah, just really enjoyed a really active outdoor lifestyle. And because it was only our family of five that had relocated, and we didn't have any extended family, we spent a lot of time together. And some of our, um, well, my favourite childhood memories were coming over each year, or every second year actually it was, between Perth and Melbourne to see mum and dad's relatives, their, um, their parents and their siblings. And it, it was, you know, a seven or eight day car trip across the Nullarbor Plain oh, in a Ford Falcon. You know, there was three kids in the back. It was obviously before iPads. And we would have a scrapbook, colouring pencils. Yeah. Most of the time it went really well, you know, but there were times that my siblings and I, we sisters, we do remember that there was, you know, the stitching and the upholstery and you would not be allowed to cross over the your <laughs> section because, you know, it was it was a long a long day sometimes. I um, spy crossing the night. All those things. That, you know, car games still almost trigger me, you yeah. know, in not a not healthy way for my own children. But where are you where are you in the order? I'm in the middle. Um, yeah. no, the weird middle you, yeah, the weird middle. Yeah. In the middle too? No, no, because this the the younger sister was shorter and so the, see, you can right. see better so what did fun. your dad do for Cadbury Sweeps what he was, was in operations so right. um, isn't it bad that I, I'm saying operations is a broad subject I'm not sure exactly what he did back when I was 8 or 10 I yeah. never really knew exactly what he did but what I did know was that sometimes the cans on the conveyor belts would have defects and little dents and you couldn't sell them so dad would be able to bring them home and in our cellar um didn't have any wine in there but it had cases of um soft drink dented soft drink cans so this is obviously in times in the 80s where it was all grape and sugar no one knew exactly how bad it was and so (laughs) while we didn't have a pool and we would 
love going to people's houses for a swim after school, they would love to come into our house because you would, you could come into our cellar and choose from the shelves. Charlie, and sarsaparilla <laughs> and creaming soda and all these things. Chocolate and factory. Everything, yeah, it was the place to be. So, yeah, it was, it was an amazing, amazing childhood. And then um, there was then opportunity that came up for Dad to then return to Melbourne again with Cambridge Webs. And my parents were keen to do that. Their parents, you know, they hadn't seen them for many years in terms of living together. We had cousins um, that we didn't really know. So, yeah, they decided that we would um, come back. And it, it was a very mixed response, especially for myself. I think my other two sisters relished the opportunity a lot more to, and settled much better than I did, to be fair, to come back to Melbourne. I don't like change, so that's probably I didn't really know my, about myself as much as I know now, but it was it was really hard. And, you know, the lifestyle, you know, every weekend was outside over there and you come into Melbourne, it's freezing. Um, you know, I didn't have any friends here. Starting a new school was really hard. Um, and that family of five, that dynamic, was still very, very, very strong. But obviously you're all learning how to settle into a brand new area and, um yeah, I obviously wouldn't change it. It was more that it was so different and mm. it took a long time to kind of adjust um, so what, to that what change. So what did your mum do? Was she looking mom, after the three? Yeah. Was she, she working as well? Yeah, she, well, um, she worked in Perth but at an aged care home. So she was, um, you know, the local... Mum, um, you know, was very much available to us. We were dropped off uh, at school by her every day, picked up by her. But in that time, she needed something for herself. So was in a position where she didn't have to do that, um, but really wanted to give back. And she's always been really community-minded. And when we returned to Melbourne, she did not aged care, but worked at Belmore Special School as a teacher's aide. Right. Um, so she's just, she, yeah, she's just a very giving person, very community-orientated. And, um, yeah, we, we grew up with both parents in the home, but mum was particularly very constant presence like she was always there after school came to all the school activities helped out in the canteen um, but still had something for her which is obviously important I think that too I would have thought your dad would be doing he'd be out the door by seven and back yes. by eight or nine and yep, big that's days exactly right so and yeah I remember we had a, a circular dining table that was family dinner every night um, but we yeah that's right he wouldn't be in the door before 7 or 7.30 because I remember Salad's entry was on, you know, all those things of, oh, it must be time for Dad to come home, you know, and, and so, yeah, we didn't have a lot of time with him during the week, but saying that on the weekend, you know, he led the family bike ride around the Swan River every Sunday without fail. That was really important that for him, that was a connection that, that he very much valued, which we do too. And when you came back to Melbourne, where'd you end up at school? Like in yeah, so I went to Kiwis Primary. Yeah. So we came back halfway through um, grade five for me. So tough time. By then, you've obviously everyone's made friends and good mm. friends by that time. So um, yeah, but but it was a great school and very happy there. And went to Bourne High School for my um, mm. high school time. And yeah, again, I, I, hockey wasn't a big thing here, but my parents, in wanting to continue that connection, something that we enjoyed, enrolled us into a, the hockey club. Um, and it was good also to have friends outside of school in for that reason. I joined the basketball team. So I'm quite sporty. Um, there was not the focus on competitive swimming here, I found, that was obviously in Perth. And I think it's cold. That's, it's cold. <laughs> yes. And I think at, when as you get older, you really look at me, are you going to be in a swimming club and have mm. the 5am starts or are you not? And we were not um, going to be doing that. Um, but still really enjoy, I guess, doing the laps and, and having that um, yeah, fitness side to myself. So what were you best at? Hockey? 
basketball, swimming? Um, I would be best at swimming in terms of, you know, the, the school sports and was able to get some awards and um, so on. So I was definitely best at swimming. And hockey, I love, genuinely love it even now. But now I think fear has just overtaken me. And I remember Dad would say when we're going out, because both sisters played, and I, two of us had races. Remember, that's a $5,000 mouth you've got there. You look after that. And now I think, you know, with small children, if you got injured, like, I don't want to have done that to myself. You know, all the, the big bruises you'd get from a hockey hockey ball coming up at you. So, yeah, I'm now just, I should I should get over that and actually and do enjoy it, but I don't. I, I just am not prioritising that at the moment. No. And what about, like, in high school, what subjects were you interested in? Uh, I, I loved English. Um, I was saying to my sisters last week, actually, we had family dinner on a Wednesday night, and it's one of them, one of my nieces is in year 11, and we were talking about what study she was doing, and my one regret if I did have one, I, I did like English, but chose foolishly now in hindsight to do English Lit, oh. and I should have done business management mm. because that is, you know, I, I feel like I would have been <laughs> quite okay at that, and I wasn't great at English Lit. Um, so I got a great mark and was very happy with it. But, you know, you think, what else could have could I have done? Um, that's something I would have changed. But, yeah, I liked PE. I liked all of them. There was something I really didn't love doing. I liked the histories. Um, but also knew that probably I was leaning towards subjects that were going to benefit me over time. I wasn't ever going to do arts at uni or anything like that. So the arts was something I did, um, you know, geography and history and, and English lit, but never really was that passionate about so are you smart or disciplined or both? I would say that's a good question. I, I would like to think I was both, but coming into um, you know the employment world and especially you know mainly the small businesses I've worked with, I find that I'm more street smart than book smart and I've learned much more on the job than anything I've read. But I enjoy learning. And you're, um, so you ended up doing commerce. So yes. was that, so when you were thinking of which university you said arts wasn't for you yes so yeah. you, you've obviously had an interest in business from an, like while you're at school to go yes. down that commerce path and and at, at Deakin you've you've studied a bit of marketing a bit of HR yes. a bit of you know broader sort of range of things yeah. did you enjoy university and what did you get out of that well I didn't know university commerce um dad was is a, a huge influence on us the three girls and I think we all kind of thought maybe business is the right path we'd seen that he was successful and it you know great discipline and you could do anything and anywhere over the world so you know business was something we were interested in we we're encouraged to read the financial sections of the papers we were encouraged to to read and learn and getting a good mark was I mean was very important from very early on it was trying your best and because it gave you options and then when each of us thankfully did and then we did have options and all three of us um, have tried different areas of business along the time, but all have done also different things. I think as life's gone on, and you know, you can open different doors. Um, but uni, having having got the commerce degree, uh, sorry, the the um, acceptance, I thought marketing and HR was what would be, um, I guess, the most two or the two most interesting um, subjects for me. Probably, um, I liked the idea of marketing. I love people, so HR to me was a natural thing. But I didn't love uni, and it was a it was a really funny thing because I love learning, I love to study. I was very happy to commit the time to getting the good mark at before high school to get that VC result. But I I honestly found uni really hard because I couldn't 
I couldn't get around that I had 12 contact hours a week. <laughs> what else was I to do? And, you know, it's not, I know it probably sounds kind of unusual, but very quickly, and so within the first 12 months of that degree, um, I learnt you could do it offline, online. Uh, sorry, it was um, correspondence, they called it. Mm. So it wasn't as big as what it is I imagine now, but you could download your lectures and you could do your own group assignment at home. So I thought, well, if I can do that, then I've even got more time. So I quickly um, started to find other, other opportunities, other jobs, and thought, how can I actually earn and make this work for me because dad one of the messages was you're always going to get ahead you've always going to be take not you can't remove the competition but you can you can be better earlier so if I was going to come out of that university course at the same time as everybody else what was going to set me apart and having some hands-on practical experience was going to be a very good thing so um, I thought maybe a sales rep would be a good thing because I can do that easily while I'm studying and I can jump in the car go on stack shelves um, so I pl- applied to um, Arnott's and then Nestle and was a sales rep for both of those companies whilst I was doing uni um, via correspondence. And then those um, two jobs, again, you're still probably doing 10 or 15 hours. Um, there was an opportunity to go to uh, Vodafone. It was uni- called Unidial, but it was a parent carrier um, with Vodafone. And there was an opportunity for a full-time job, um, 5 p.m. to 3 a.m., so it was a big commitment and in hindsight, not Doing something I'd, we well, doing? being on the phone and you'd, you'd ring and say, I can't access my PIN code. Can oh, you help my support, SIM card? Bro. Yeah. And it was at night time because, you know, everybody has problems at different times. Um, and that wasn't the only shift available. There was, it was a 24 hour call center, but that was the one that was available when I was hiring people. And. I thought, well, probably that's something I can do because I can still do university. Um, I let go of one of the um, sales reps and then the second one followed afterward. And, yeah, did uni kind of in the day from home and then I did the work at night time. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who was there at 3 o'clock in the morning? Like, was Me it just and you? 12 other random people in a call centre. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And did anyone call? Yeah, one? yeah. Oh, yeah, people call. It, it's an interesting... It's like we... I went to KFC when I was younger and um, just, you know, a fast food joint. And, and customer service is a very enlightening way to meet the world. You know, you expect people are going to transact like you do and they just don't. Mm. And it's the same when you've got a phone that doesn't work. You know, and I think myself, what are you doing? But there's a lot of shift workers that need... You know, that, that time is good for them to call. Um, there's mm. a lot of people that are out at that time so they've lost their phone or it's blocked you know 5pm not going to bed until you know 11 12 at night so there's a lot of people still out and around what did you so what skills did you learn do you think in those sales jobs and phone jobs like what what did you pick up it was definitely you know inside customer service like we were saying it's everybody is very different I think you've got to be calm and patient all the time and you have to realize that because people don't respond the same way you've got to quickly work out what they are going to respond to to get the outcome that you need Um, you know you don't want to escalate things if you don't have to so you've really got to be quite emotionally intelligent to work out how to diffuse the situation get the outcome and then part as you know, with a loyal customer at the end. So those are the kind of, that was the training, but that's that's um, that's the most effective. So when was this? What sort of years was this? I was 19, 20. <laughs> it was right. like, so what was that? 2000? Yeah. Yeah. 
And then, so then your first sort of job out of uni, like, you know, to starting your career was the early days at Boost Juice. So, you know, 2002, I think it's, you started there. So, you know, became one of the fastest growing companies or particularly franchise. We'll get into the franchising later. But so what the early days like with working with Janine and, you know, I I know there was a pretty small team back then. Yes. How was that? Yeah, it was so unique um, because I had the degree and HR was one of the, the main focuses um, one of the um, other roles I had was a recruitment consultant for a private um, uh, agency called Centre Staff. So I'd run that temp desk for about 18 months. Uni- Vodafone and Udall had now left. Um, and so I was now more, you know, morphing into more of a, a traditional full-time um, uh, employee. And this was before Seek. And the, the age advertised for a junior HR officer for Australia's largest or fastest growing um juice but and I honestly thought it was berry juice you know I, I thought it was something far far bigger and you know I'm, I was working with FMCG so thinking that it must be something like that anyway I applied for the role found out it was boost and that same weekend I'd been to Southland which was one of their first stores for girlfriend and that was my first um, try of the product and I absolutely loved it I love that they call my name out I'd never experienced a, you know, a retail environment like that. So loved it. And then when I found out that that was the, um, the company, really, really wanted the job. And it was interesting because having um, the interview with the Novotel and St Kilda, like obviously it's, it was a nice surrounding. I had a coffee, met Janine, had a wonderful interview, thankfully got the job. And then she did say it was the offices, there is no office, it's her house. And I thought, well, that's fine. I like that. I'm flexible. That's fine. Anyway, I came to the house and and we still talk about it now the door opened and there was a great dane slash um across bull matsif you know those those horse type dogs you know they're absolutely i mean i'm not not a dog person so that was very (laughs) alarming and the door opened that molly was the dog's name came through um and it it was a house you know in east malvern and because that was also the office it wasn't like going into, I imagine, your homes. It was computer cables, you know, makeshift, um, you know, duct tape on the floor so you wouldn't trip on the cables. It was not a traditional home that you would have open for inspection. So, yeah, there was myself. Um, there was Janine's father, Tom, who was doing the accounts part-time. And there was Janine. And there was uh, an operations person in Sydney. Uh, sorry, not Sydney, in, in Adelaide. That's where the business um, started. So it was a very, very, very small team. And franchising was just starting um the program had been written um and yes the the business i guess was in a position to say that in the advertisement because the intent was great the intent was going to be very early on that this was going to be a very successful juice business how many stores at that stage i think there was about six yeah it was it was very very small all in adelaide Uh, no, because the Southland one was there, yeah. but Doncaster, it was before Doncaster. Jam Factory was there, on yeah. Chapel Street. So, yeah, the, I think from memory it was Southland and Jam Factory in Melbourne, and Adelaide. there was Adelaide. Yeah, so it was very, 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 very um, small. But in that first week, so I was there, and again, it was, I think, on day six, um, Jeff, who was doing the leasing, said that he'd done a 16-site deal with Westfield, and it was going to happen. So, you know, again not coming from franchising, not coming from a small business or from a business that was growing, at, going to be growing at rapid rate. Naivety was the most, I guess, um, the biggest advantage to myself because I had no idea really what they meant. <laughs> you know, is that a big deal? Is it, is it 
but now I know if someone said that to me, that that's like you know you intimately what is involved in that. So mm-hmm. um, most of those stores were going to be franchised, and Janine had a conversation with me and said, look. Uh, because they were using an external company for franchise recruitment. We're looking to wind that up. We're going to bring it in-house. It's much more cost-effective. What do you think about recruiting the franchisees? And it's still one of those conversations that you replay to think how life, this is the sliding door moment, sliding how life door. could yep. have been different. Yep. And again, it was because I didn't really understand what that would look like and how my recruitment training would have to change um, for franchising. But in reality, as she obviously saw it didn't have to change that much Mm. um so i was in a good position to do it and i am a say yes to everything type person so i was like sure i'll give it a go (laughs) someone who doesn't like change yeah i know yes on the the spot but i think (laughs) say yes to everything yes yes like change i know what what a conundrum (laughs) but it is interesting because you know i was 19 or 20 i had no debt i lived at home with my parents Mm. what could go wrong like like whatever it did if it didn't work there yeah. was, I never, you know, it, it's very different when you have nothing to lose. You can be in a position to say, sure, and give it a go. And the luxury of that was a wonderful thing. So, um, yeah, I carried HR because the reason why they wanted a HR person, even though they had such a small team, was because they knew that this growth was coming and they had to hire a CFO and they had to hire an operations person. And, mm. um, you know, she, she was very, very clever in realising that you could pay recruitment agencies or franchise agencies big hits with each appointment or you could bring it in house and make it much more economical um, hire all the time so I did HR and was the franchise recruitment person for about 18 months and then needed to make a choice of you know which direction do I kind of go with and by then I just fell in love with franchising and sales I, I didn't realize how much I loved sales and got that buzz of recruiting a great franchise partner who was so happy to be chosen mm-hmm. um, and you're working for a brand that at that time was the most sought after brand in food. Fantastic. So you could be in a position to choose the very best of the very best. So we had great people working for us, great franchisees that want to be part of us and great support from the landlords and um, the banking mm-hmm. and, you know, salute, um, environment and so it was it was a really unique time um so to be how part many of. did you do in the first 18 months there was oh i, I honestly can't remember the Shit actual lines. number but yes it was there was a time when you're opening a store um, a year then a store a month then a store a week and then at some point there was a store a day so it was it was incredibly wow. fast growth and not just in one state it was multi-states going at one time so it was very very busy um but you know, you became very good friends with people that you worked with mm. and you're very dependent on that team and it did work very harmoniously. And there was Janine, um, myself, um, somebody in um, the the leasing side, someone in the law side. Like it was it was always you're really dependent on a franchise that comes in, let's make this work um, as smoothly as it possibly can. Um, and how is your relationship with Molly? Did that develop Molly, nicely? Molly, no, no, Molly. <laughs> I was glad to go to the office, which happened, I think, within the first month. I was like, thank goodness. And Molly, I saw her depart from a distance forevermore. But I guess um, coming from a background with your dad's involved in business, but not actually the owner of a business. So learning from people like Jeff and Janine that have been prepared to take risks. Yes. um, Pretty, that's a, you know, now looking back, you go, 
shit, that's a pretty big risk to, yep. to take on all those leases yeah. in one hit. Huge. Yeah. yeah. So you've learned a bit about entrepreneurship. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. A crash course. Yeah. And you're right. I didn't grow up in that environment at yeah. all. Dad's very, very risk adverse. You know, if you have a, a line of the risk taker and the one who will never, never take one, he will be very, very firmly down that end. So we didn't grow up in that environment. So watch it is quite an interesting thing to watch unfold and as we all know it doesn't always work out well um, but you know I think looking at that business Jeff the, the duo works because Jeff was definitely the risk taker and Janine could follow and understand that yes there was something that he could see that perhaps she couldn't or, or it was definitely the best decision to go along with that um, and he had the risk reward you have to really take a big bite, I think, to really have the big reward at the end. I've, I've never met them, but just talking to Christy and who else was working there at Boost for a while? That Gavin we, Meadows. Gavin Meadows. It just seems that they, that, sure, they took risks, but they seemed like they bedded it down before mm. they took that mm. risk. It, it's mm. it, like I love the fact that they're operating out of their house. They got shit everywhere in the yeah. house. Molly's licking people, all that sort of stuff. But I love that. I think it's, they, they're yeah. really just knuckled down until they go, right, let's go. Yes, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, to, to be able to have that, um, you know, to, to have that lease situation, there was a lot at risk for the family because they did have three children at that point as well. Mm. So that's even more admirable. You have to think, gosh, like that takes a lot of, that's a big appetite for yeah. risk. Um, and Jeff did have a very secure, well-paying job. So, right. but it wasn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that there was there was a safety net. It was still a huge gamble to roll, and you are franchising at this point. So, yeah. it, that's even more of a reason. And Janine was very intent on that very early. That she was very, she always felt very very responsible for their success. Mm. So, it's one thing to do it as corporate and and have your own company as stores, but when you're doing it with other people, you know, third-party capital, franchisees that are looking at you as, you know, the answer, that that does weigh on you as well as the actual rich. And those six, the Adelaide's one, they must have been trading very, very well as well. Yeah, I think definitely the early ones traded particularly well. Mm. And, you know, as Janine would say, we didn't invent smoothies, but we did make it cool. And other smoothies and juice bars, there was definitely many of them operating at that time. Um, but it was it was definitely the one the brand that you could put in people's hands, and it just exploded with that target market. Mm. And it, you know, over time, it's a brand that continues to the pe- the children, um, or sorry, the 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 people who grew up with that brand as a twenty year old like me. You know, now you are buying it for your children, and you're buying a kid size. So it works for families, it works for the individual, it works for the corporate, it works for the fitness person, it works as a snack or a meal. This, it, it's a very, very clever way to market a food item. So how were you, I mean, not under understating it, but you would have been almost taking orders. There was, if the business was buzzing that much that you, as you said, you had the opportunity to pick the right people yes. all the time. I mean, I'm sure there was a couple of little mistakes in there on, that you did, <laughs> anyway. did along the way. It's never always that rosy, but um, the, that process what did did you think you did that well like how did how did, how were you picking these people was it was it gut feel or was it were you 
doing psychological profiling yeah. or any of that, that, you know, all that stuff. I think we did it very well considering what we knew at the time and what resources we had available at the time. Mm. I think that recruitment of people, like we wrote the recruitment methodology based on HR. So you're looking for a particular person. Um, we designed quite a comprehensive application form thinking that you have to really be serious about this if you want to fill out this 18-page form and give us all this information that we're asking without having met us. So we we were quite intentional by having the balance of the right hoops to go through but still making it fun and getting to know the person at the end of it. Um, but it, a lot of it was just, you know, an application form, um, the first interview, the interview had a second interview, if you weren't really sure, but it was really more for the franchisee to ask questions and so on. But mm. you are going into... I can't remember many times where you didn't know at that first interview whether it was going to go all the way. And, you know, when I was there in that business, we, we prided ourselves on the fact that never, ever did one person go to final interview to be approved by Janine that wasn't accepted. She had such faith in the system that we were choosing always and putting forward to her the best possible fit, mm. the people that we felt were the best fit. All owner managers, or any investors in those early days? No, there was there's one thing she was very very firm on, which I totally support now in my business is you need to work in the business at least the first six months full time, mm. and for her as well it was really important that there was only siblings or couples. You couldn't just be friends because friends, you know, businesses mm. we all know it doesn't always guarantee a successful outcome, and it's our business that we're going to be left with if it doesn't all go well. Um, which there's no guarantee that a sibling wouldn't break or a marriage wouldn't, <laughs> but um, it was one less degree of difficulty yeah, in our opinion. Less chance but, of blowing yeah, up. That's right. But and you could recruit, you know. Yes, the the best of the best. In, in our opinion, that that was who we were. We were lucky enough to have in our stable. And um, on the same theme, trying to find the best people overseas yes, is the next yes, challenge. So yeah. you move from running the Australian part of the recruitment side the franchisees to international, yes. um, which would have been very exciting, still young, jumping on planes and flying yes, around the world yeah, and great. Yeah. But um, So tell us a bit about that decision. You're obviously involved with Janine in, in sort of looking overseas. And then yeah. probably the next thing is who were your first partners in? Because it's a different thing when you're finding international partners compared to domestic. Yes, exactly. I was very lucky to be on the board um, from a very early stage and so exposed to those conversations. By then we had Jeff um, Harris on board from one of the founders of Flight Centre, Rod Young from DC. Um, we had a lot of very experienced international uh, minds uh, and obviously Rod's experience, very deep in international franchising. So once the decision was made to go international, which was made because we could see saturation point was coming, the pace that we were growing was phenomenal, it was only going to continue, um, that we were planning to go um, offshore. And we were getting many, many approaches from other overseas parties and we thought, well, I mean, we can't ignore this. Um, so, yes, Janine and I were the two um, hands-on international people. I think we were both... Janine probably was particularly keen for a change and, and wanting to... She's interested in travel and overseas markets and, um, and I, by then, was obsessed with franchising, especially with the international thing and how could that change and how can we structure that deal and what could that look like so as a team yes we traveled um and we found that we we spent a lot of time with Austrade, who at the time were you could um, commission them to do a lot of profiling a lot of desk research about how attractive a particular country could be for our product um, which 
a lot of it was based on the similarities between Australian consumer and our demographic and our core target market and um, somebody else in a different market. And New Zealand was one of the first markets they went to and famously it did not work. And it did not work because the main reason was the partner that we chose was not the right one, um, but also because we, we naively thought that it's Australia New Zealand, like we don't need to change it very much (laughs) and made that classic mistake that many, I think, Australian-based franchisors make when they go overseas and just don't or they underestimate the differences and the nuances between each country and don't respect enough the changes that you have to make. Um, so it, we also made the wrong... So so that was a big lesson of if really make sure that we do alter the menu enough, we do um, use the language that is appropriate in each country, the terminology, all those little 1% is a very, mm. very important, um, but also partner selection. So we were blown away by a guy who, um, you know, had the right experience on paper but wasn't a cultural fit for us and... When you are managing a franchise business remotely, when you are doing that international work, it's just so important to have that culture um, very, very much aligned early on because we can't be there all the time. And we are, it's still a franchise network. We are still going to be governed by the agreement and both parties respecting that agreement. Mm. So, so are, they, are they there now, first in New Zealand now? Do they go back? I actually don't know. I'm not sure. Do you know? Yeah, no, don't know. But I know, I know that one of the things you had was you uh, sort of a proactive and a reactive strategy around looking at um, at different markets and saying, oh yeah, of course we're going to go here because they speak English and they like juice, and we're going to go yeah. here because of that and that and that. But then, surprisingly, other markets that you didn't really think of, people approached you exactly. a- and have gone well. Is you know that unsurpri- you know surprisingly went well. So yes. so how did that reactive, um, proactive yes. you know, strategy work for you? It, it's a really interesting question. On the wall of my office, there was a huge map of the world, and there were coloured pins all over it. So they were the pins of thinking we're going to go to these markets. That's what um, you know the research says is going to be the most conducive to our concept. But we were always open to getting approaches from excellent excellent people especially from that not just the New Zealand experience but we knew even from the Australian business that someone with no of me experience no franchising experience could actually be phenomenal um, so it was it was very much higher on an attitude train for experience and we did feel that that was still applicable um, in overseas markets but when you did have an approach from someone who was very very passionate about the product had an Australian connection um, had business experience so again not necessarily food or franchising but had had run a successful business before and had the capital to be able to pay for the fees and not just the upfront master franchise fee but to actually open the units as agreed Um, it was very hard to say no to those people so you know Chile was an example of that we didn't necessarily mean to go to Chile in the first five but that's what happened and we had a phenomenal partner there um, and you know there's many other countries I can think of Estonia you know that, that you wouldn't necessarily think on paper it actually made sense but did it you know did where it make was? sense did you know where it was yeah <laughs> <laughs> didn't know how cold it was going to be though until I got off the plane but yeah the it was, that's yeah <laughs> So, so what, yeah. So what did you, so New Zealand first, then what? Chile, yeah, yeah, and then there was oh, in, Indonesia. So we, 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 this is where the agreements, the timing of when the deals were signed, um, might be a bit out of whack. But yeah, at the, at the first couple were um, New Zealand, the UAE, Chile, and Indonesia. So if you just if you imagine the map, what that looks like, it's not doesn't 
we yeah. certainly see cohesion, um, but very, very different cultures. And yeah, again, the, that was the beauty of the product. It can and it can work anywhere with the right people and the right strategy. It can work anywhere, but the people are the most important thing to get right. So where are they now? What what are they everywhere now? Everywhere, all yeah. th- throughout Asia, not America, um, but right. all, all throughout Asia. Did you have a crack um, at America when you were there? We we had. There's a company called Booster Juice, which is a Canadian-based store, actually in Oregon. Um, that's their that's their equivalent of Boost Juice. They're the main one uh, with Jamba Juice dominating mm. the rest of North America. So we were in discussions with them. Jeff Janine and I went over there and had a series of discussions with um, the founders of that brand. But that was kind of the essence of it. Maybe we we team up with you and go North America. Um, or we do the rest of the world on our own. And as it was, that, that transaction didn't um, eventuate. But with Jamba Juice there and with um, you know the domination of that brand, it wasn't that we were frightened to go there. It was more that the opportunities outside of Australia so and outside good. of America are so good and are closer to home. So, What's the point? Yeah, they, they, they now boost dominate mm. all of Southeast Asia, um, yeah. you know, the Middle East, parts of throughout Europe. It's It's really... You couldn't do that, I think, as well if we had to just focus solely on uh, on America. And around that time, um, you are fortunate to win some awards, so congratulations. So, you know, uh, Telstra National Young Businesswoman of the Year, um, the Victorian Businesswoman of the Year, really? um, AFR oh. Boss Young Entrepreneur, uh, Young Executive, sorry, of the Year. So, um, fantastic to, to be cool. recognised. And, you know, I know that at the same time, Boost as a business was also winning awards. And so, yeah. you know, what did winning those sorts of awards mean for you in in your career well it was, it was huge personal achievement janine nominated me for those awards that was that was a wonderful thing she herself had won um the telstra award so and as you mentioned boost was definitely getting celebrated um so it was a really unique amazing amazing journey um and the yeah, the personal awards were, were wonderful because you, you like all of us you know you do it very hard um and it didn't always feel like work because I genuinely loved it so much and my, my best friends are in that um, business and, and still now um, because of that, how unique that was. But it was nice to be recognised, I guess, and it did it did open more um, doors for me personally as well, which um, was always a nice thing. But, yeah. And then, so, you know, then it all, you know, all good things come to an end at some stage, yes. other than the friendships, which I know yes. you still have. Yes. Um, so, you know, f- after Boost, there was lots of different opportunities that came um, your way and some of yeah. them in companies that were growing and others that were in companies that were probably as John the sunset rather than the sunrise type companies so yes. the ones that I know a little bit about Red Group Retail and Kiki K were two businesses yes. that you worked in so tell us a little bit about you know the book industry uh, stationery out of after being in in boost yes. in food. Well, it's it's a funny thing because last time before going from WA and it's you know all sun and outdoor and everyone's loving life and it's wonderful and then you come to Melbourne it's not that you don't love Melbourne but it's so different and it takes a lot of time to get your head around the, the climate's different the culture's different all of that and that is almost how I would think the leap or the, the departure from Boost to go to Red Group because you could not get to more stark mm-hmm. different um, environments and I thought that's what I wanted I thought that I wanted to be able to go from small business entrepreneurial homegrown where the pace was phenomenal, but it was sink or swim, which I loved. But I thought, I wonder, I wonder what a more corporate 
um, structure. You know, it was PE funded, um, and I loved Borders. So P- Red Group Retail had Borders, Angus and Robertson, Dimmix, mm-hmm. um, not not Dimmix, sorry, Whitcalls in New Zealand. Um, so it was a collection of book retail brands, and I thought I thought maybe I was ready to do something completely different and learn a different a different environment and when different was way this? of working. It was like two thousand and seven. Oh no, two thousand and nine. I think oh. it was. Yeah, two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was just just turned thirty. Mm-hmm. A lot happened in that time. Um, yeah. So I went to Red Group Retail and it was there for ten months, and the business um, went under. Because they were they they had about sixteen stores, didn't they? Yeah. And there were some that were just shit. But there were some that were absolute crackers. Like Carlton was like it's still people talk about you know Carlton and it, it was it was a phenomenal place um, to work in that that you know it was it was similar to the booze culture and that people who worked there loved working there and mm. you know if you were a reader if you like I was you you would know it was fun to know twelve months ahead what books were coming out and all of that was great but you had a lot of people working there who were very very um, book people and didn't necessarily love the business side of it or didn't feel as comfortable in the business side Um, and you know it was an interesting part when it went into administration it's very interesting for any brand when you've got multiple brands that are competing against each other all owned by the same person Mm. there there wasn't the right discipline lined up between each brand so that there was just mass cannibalisation in the end yeah yeah, I think it's a shame that, that they really could have. We had a look at that when it went under, and and there were five or six stores that were trading and trading very well, but they had no stock at all. No, old no, stock. Yeah, yeah. Just I, I, if that was handled properly, that should be around today and trading very, very well. Yeah, well, you look at the success of Readings. I mean, Readings is is just an iconic book brand here in Melbourne, and that's what Borders was was largely based on. But obviously, as an American franchise or a licensed arrangement and it had the size that was like a Starbucks place to kind of hang but yeah there was a, there were, when you dissect it it's a, it's great lessons of what not to do I yeah. guess and that was important so what was the and the biggest lesson was the was a, the competing brands because yes. lots of people do that so yes. that's yeah. interesting that does work well okay. if, if you have the right disciplines in yeah. place between them it can but in our you know worst case scenario you had the same book on the same promotion at the same price selling to the same customer oh, yeah. so it's just not sustainable mm. yeah. and um, Kiki K so obviously yes. it was a um, fast growing business also run by husband and wife entrepreneurial team yes. um, and with international um, expansion ideas so yes. tell us about that that experience yeah so I left obviously Red Group and um, I, I took about 12 months off then, or 18 months, um, and just travelled. So even though I travelled a lot with Boost, I hadn't done a lot of personal travel. So after the Red Group experience, it was time to, to leave. Um, I'd met my husband at Red Group, so that was a, a great outcome um, that result. happened. And then, <laughs> that's right, it was a win. And then came back, um, and then I was still in contact with Janine, obviously, and she was having a lot of people you know, contact her and say, look, I'm thinking of franchising. Do you know of anyone that can help me in? Gigi Hay was a company that she was at the time on the board of and said, look, maybe um, talk to Jacinta. So met with Gigi Hay and it started off as a two-day-a-week um, kind of consulting arrangement. Try, at the time, I was thinking of franchising um, some of the units here in Australia. Mm-hmm. but um, and, and, yes, international, international like yeah. having kind of exposure international. So 
it definitely sounded like me. Again, I love the product. I was a customer. It's really important to me that I actually work with companies I really like. Um, and because of the experience ending like it did, maybe I thought, well, maybe small business is for me. I just should stick in that world. Um, and yeah, had had um, I think it was like two years that he came in the end, but still only just doing that those two days a week. And I enjoyed it. Um, to a point I think that it was a very unique culture I think a Scandinavian brand um, there was a lot that I loved about it a lot that really resonated with me from a consumer point of view but the 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 part that I didn't enjoy or I guess why it didn't um, it wasn't sustainable was that there wasn't really the appetite truly to for franchising it was at the time a necessary strategy as opposed to a desired one so because of the way that the stores were trading and it needed funding franchising did make sense I could understand why it was suggested absolutely but unfortunately there wasn't the support for that properly um, at board level to be able to properly commit the resources to do that so it was a little bit of a role where I felt kind of in limbo of, of are we doing this or not I'm paid to be running the strategy but do we really want to do this? So it was a little, it wasn't, um, I guess, a really rewarding um, role. Um, but I understood, you know, franchise is not, not for everybody. And they never actually ended up franchising and I think probably was the right outcome for them. Um, so it did work out the right way for them. Um, but yes, it was a, it was probably a stepping stone for me. You know, again, no regrets, but um, one that just didn't work out. Probably it was interesting they, you know, possibly had, they grew fast as well, mm, um, but mm. possibly didn't get the same deals on the leases, and yes, you know, so they yeah. were they were looking to franchise their poor performing sites, which is not always, you know, you, you talked about Boost and the way that Janine was really, really passionate about the success of the franchisees, yeah. and if you're going into franchising just trying to get rid of your shit, it's not a great way to go no. into it. So it was probably you're right, a good way that a good result, although ultimately the business had other challenges, yes, possibly because right. yeah. they had too many sites. They'd taken on sites that weren't great sites yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and then out of out of those roles, I won't get, I know there was a couple other, but PwC, so, you know, in yes. the news a lot at the moment, yeah. but, but, yes. but this is way before all those things were happening. Uh, <laughs> Can I just ask, just, I don't know how much time we've got left, but did you take a fair confidence hit? after red group because oh, yeah because you, you said yeah. you know i think small business why why we why was that a confidence hit for you i think i was big fish in little pond at boost i was i was very confident <laughs> i was on the board i knew it was not one part of that business especially the franchising areas and the areas that i looked after because so when i left i was ceo of international but ceo of the boost investment group so you know my remit was amazing i could we were looking to buy other brands to come under our umbrella i had a lot of different units reporting to me designer development purchasing it, it was a it was a phenomenal phenomenal role and um the red group one was group brand and strategy director so a senior executive role it was um you know a, a very a very um interesting time to be part of that business for what we've discussed but yes it did make me think maybe you know that's that's i'm not i'm not um good at the culture side the political side I don't like that side so yeah maybe I just would ignore that and and you work hard but 
it's not in your control. That's what I thought was the mm. hardest thing. I could not impact change in that business. It was too big yeah. and too many egos and too much politics. And mm. you go to a boost and that just didn't exist. You wanted something happened to launch the next day that had mm. happened. In a red group or a business of that size, in, in my experience, was that you could talk about it as an idea, then you have a second meeting to talk about it again. Let's have another meeting in three months to make sure we still think it's a good idea. And it just became very frustrating, I think, yeah. to me. So, so then yeah. you've moved to PwC, Australia's largest consultant. Yes. <laughs> I five to me. I don't like change. <laughs> And now I'm at and a big place where there's yes, yeah, yeah. committees to decide what the committees can do. <laughs> that's right. That's the thing that the boost experience, you know, eight years there in, in that journey. And that's, that's that how it was very, very hard. You know, to leave that business was incredibly challenging. I think it would have happened, didn't matter where I went. Nothing was going to compare to that. Mm. It, it's like having the best love of your life. And then afterwards, who's going to compare to that? It was a really weird way to start. Most people, I think, if you're lucky enough to have that feeling, and have that employment, it happens kind of at the end of your career or you know, toward the end, you work up to it. Whereas mine happened really oh, early start. at the very, very start. So, um, yeah, it, it's the, the PwC one um, came again at a good time because I didn't ideally regret would have worked, ideally, GK would have worked, mm. and that was the intent going into them. And I certainly, there's not much I, I could or would do differently to make that outcome any more successful for myself or for the businesses. PwC was an interesting one because then, so by now I'm consulting to a few other people, but I'm still I'm self-taught. So everything I'm consulting is the experience of boost or the lessons I've learned, but not actually being corporate, you know, trained by a team of consultants. And PwC, when they approached, I thought, oh my God, how can I not do that? Um, so they were looking at the time to really ramp up their franchising practice because while they're an accounting firm first and foremost, they were they were committing more and more resources to developing their advisory side of the business. And Greg Hodson was their franchising partner. So I really had a great rapport with him, loved what they were looking to do. And they were attracted to myself because while they had a lot of book smart people, they didn't have anyone they could really put client facing yeah. who had done it before. So for it was a win-win for both of us. And um, yeah, I was there for I think two and a half, three years maybe before I fell pregnant with my first child. Um, and if I didn't though, um, I, I, I I'll rephrase or how I phrase this, but it was it wouldn't have continued because there wasn't really the appetite amongst the partner network to commit to the franchising side. Greg was really holding a flag on that island um, and it was a hard ask I think for him and for us and our team which was a small team of five people um, we enjoyed it we liked the work we did there's a lot of great reports and work that came out of that that clients benefited from but um, yeah it, it was it was an accounting firm and I think that it will always be an accounting firm so um, before we get to tips because we don't have that yeah. much time left yeah. but I'm just going to you know you've been on after your consulting roles and you know, having the kids, um, you, the board roles that you've had. So Ventura Bus Lines, Silk Laser Clinic, Schnitz, Empty Esky, Keith Training, Fuse Recruitment and Hatch. You've got a lot of diversity from all sorts of different sectors. Um, yes. Not all retail, not all food. Um, so how, how have you enjoyed the board roles and, and what do you feel do you bring to the table on the board roles? Yeah, it's, it's been great. I think... Um, when I left PwC, I was pregnant with that number one child, like I mentioned, and just love... And I, I knew it would happen to me. I just love being a mum. And I've got three children now. And, and I, because of my mum doing drop-off every day, pick-up every day, that's really important to me. Um, and 
when I can make it happen, that, that, is, that, that is definitely the priority. Um, but the board roles are great because that does afford great flexibility. So I have that portfolio of five. I know all the different meetings I'm going to have for the next 12 months um, and I can structure ad hoc consulting around that if I like to. And that's a, a wonderful position to be in because, like I mentioned before, I, I loved Geek because I was a customer. I love Bootsy so I was a customer. I can now choose to work with clients that I really do like. I like the product or I really like them personally. And now I feel more confident having that conversation, not just sharing the boost journey and all those lessons, but those years at PwC of proper corporate training and discipline and strategy work, I feel more equipped to have those consulting conversations, but that's what lends itself to a board role too. Sitting around lots of diversity in the portfolio in also diversity in the people I work with that I'm learning I'm hopefully my, my intent is that you're you're adding value every meeting and imparting knowledge, but you're also learning yourself. And that does happen at a board discussion because you're surrounded by people who have done many different things in their experiences and that's the intent to work together as a team as a resource to that founder or that business to help make everybody all stakeholders more successful so yes I I really enjoy it Um, and yes it allows me to still be a really hands-on mum but still tick that mental box for me Um, I like working and I like learning so um, the board roles give me that opportunity to do both you go no, you are. Because I'm going to open up a huge can of words. Sally's <laughs> <laughs> going to round us up. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to the, we'll let her think about the t- thinking music for the tips before. Oh, yes, John's, yes, tips, yeah. But uh, John's question. <laughs> um, the, I know when, when I left, when we sold Michelle's, I, I wanted to prove that it was the, that I could do it myself. Hmm. So I went out and we started looking at brands and all that sort of stuff. And, and long story short, we did a good good job with it, but we fucked it up and lost a lot of money. Um, and I, I look back and go, okay, well, where's where do I add the most amount of value? And I know exactly where that is. And it, my success came from the people around me. Yes. My question to you is, you've left a business that was on fire, mm. and you're probably thinking, I'm young, I've been there and I've done that. You're obviously a very driven individual and you wanted the next challenge. Were there elements of you going, I wanna see if I can crack it on my own? Or were you just like, okay, now's a great time to get out at the top? No, I think it's a great point. Um, I've always said, if, if I had an idea, if an opportunity came by that I thought, that's it, I would be doing it in a heartbeat. Because I think I'd, I would want to die wondering. I'd mm. love to know what that experience is like. So I'm not afraid of the risk. So even though I have that background, I now have been surrounded by you know people like Janine for most of my life now mm. to show me that no, it doesn't always work, but yes, it's worth having a chat or having a crack. My challenge is I just have not come across that thing or that or been at the right place at the right time to to truly have one. So I invest in a number of businesses. I'm, I'm happy to do that. But no, I don't have anything to call my own and would be open to it definitely because, yeah, like I mentioned, I, I, I don't want to have any regrets and think – and my husband's the same way. We often say, like, if you had that one thing, you'd both – and how great that you've got two of you that want to do that – um, but what that looks like, is it a franchise? Is it is it a new system? Is it, what, what does that look like? I'm not sure, mm. but yes, definitely open to it. 
good on you. Okay, as we finish up, any tips you've got for franchisors? Yes. You know, as a little yeah. journey, you've worked with lots of them over the over the years now. Yes, um, one one that that I that I say all the time um, is actually not mine, but Jeff Jeff Alice's one. But he kind of had in our minds all the time was grow fast but safely, which when I say to clients, they all respond to that because you all want good growth. But what does safely mean? And it does mean not taking on too many sites that you can't obviously support them properly, um, not compromising on the quality of the people that you are taking on. So franchisees, for example, you may not be in a position of where Bruce was at the, at the, at the height where I was there to choose the best of the best, but still doesn't mean just doing the check in the heartbeat franchising, you know, really make mm-hmm. sure that you don't compromise um, on the quality of the people that you're taking. And and a personal mantra of mine, as you both know, is say yes to everything. So it doesn't always relate to franchising because, you know, it, it's a, it's a um, you know, like those first two tips are, are more traditional business tips, but for personal growth, um, yes, I think that's really important. Just you never know what can happen. Live life. Can I... Of all the... <laughs> Of all the discussions that we've had around Boost, yes, the thing, my big takeaway for everyone that's been involved in it is they made sure the franchisee was making money. Mm. That was the number one priority. Yep. You can't fuck it up if you have that approach. No. And it's, believe it or not, that trait or that thought process is not that common. No, I, I would agree with that. Yes. And I think that's right. A lot of, a lot of companies seem to franchise by default it's not their preferred strategy they do it because they have to and that is like what we were saying before is the worst possible way to do it Um, others do it because they're making some money but it's too hard running company owned stores so they think oh let's just give it to somebody else but but that's the thing you know one of the many reasons why Janine is so successful and Jeff is because they had that mantra you you Mm. that you were never going to set someone up to fail ever yep so good. You, you you had to make sure that you would never, ever take on a site as a franchise if you weren't going to do it company-owned. Never. And all those disciplines, we were all trained in. So we all came out of that business. And many of us are working in franchise networks around Australia. And hopefully that's just going to, you know, penetrate many different systems. Because, yeah, we, we, we learnt very early on um, that that's right you, you, you're playing with people's homes and mortgages and, and you have to, and, and also if they fail we fail as well mm. so that's you know defeats the whole purpose exactly thank you very much you're for welcome. spending some time thank with us today me. thank you thank <laughs> you even though you're full of shit because you don't <laughs> like change <laughs> so true yeah. maybe I've obviously become better at it <laughs> I think so well done that's great thank, thank you thank you